Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, uh, we screw up a lot, and uh, we have a couple of stories about it to talk about on this episode. It is uh, Niagara Falls, New York. And they'll calm Louisiana. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. everyone, and welcome to episode 4.07, the first episode, main episode, recorded in the completely rearranged, completely redone office slash studio. I actually recorded last week's Backroads in the new setup and really thoroughly enjoyed it, 
And uh, um, yeah, I think it's gonna be great. I have so much more room now to spread out. I used to only have like maybe 30% of the desk space in the office. So the office, if you've seen pictures of it, it doesn't really have a desk in it. It has, what it has is uh, a kitchen cabinet, a kitchen countertop, just without the cabinets underneath. It just held up with legs to turn it into a gigantic desk that wraps halfway around the office, a big L shape. So I've been using, up until now, about 30% of the office. And then it kind of came to everyone's attention, like, I'm the only one that ever really uses the office as an office. Everyone else just kind of stores some stuff in here. So, like, you know, it, we talked about it, and I was able to take over and rearrange it so that I could use most of the space. And then we have a little bit over here where I used to be to store paperwork and bills and things like that. So, uh, overhauled a bunch of stuff, bought some stuff, got a nice big long Corsair gaming mouse pad, put a bunch of LED mood lighting in, which I'm really liking, really digging. Um, just have way more room. I can, I've got a place now for everything. The MIDI keyboard has a place. Yeah, no, everything is just right where I want it. More bookshelf space to put more crap on the bookshelves as we go along. Uh, and it's just wonderful. But there actually will be a YouTube video up this weekend, really short kind of tour if anyone wants to see it and the stuff that I use. So go over to the YouTube page and that'll be up Saturday. Uh, unless you join Patreon in the next like 24 hours and you can watch it earlier. But I'll, we'll talk about Patreon later. But tonight, I want to talk about two towns that had, I guess, engineering disasters, for a lack of a better term. And uh, we're going to talk about Niagara Falls, New York, and Love Canal. And then we're going to talk about, it's spelled Del Comber, Louisiana, but I think it's actually pronounced Del Com. I, I don't know. That's the way they pronounced it on the History Channel. So I'm going with Delcom because that's the way they said it on there. And uh, Lake uh, Peñor, um, which was a lake that was sucked into a salt mine. We're, we will get into all this craziness here in a little bit. But getting back to how I just kind of, I just mentioned the History Channel. So back in the day, there used to be, I don't know, it might still be on, I don't know, the History Channel. And it was called, it was a show, it was called Modern Marvels. And they would talk about, well, modern marvels, you know, space, you know, all that stuff, space shuttles and technology and stuff like that. But then they kind of had this offshoot, this genre within their own show that they would call engineering disasters. And they had like 20 episodes of this where it was just about like, you know, chemical spills and jet fuel plants blowing up and stuff collapsing. You know, I think they did one on the Narrows Bridge, that famous bridge that we've probably all seen footage of that wobbles back and forth really bad and then falls into the falls into the water below. But like I, like I said, they did play 18, 20 episodes of it. And if you got really lucky, if you were me, like they would just take like a Sunday or a Saturday and just be like, we're just going to we're just going to show them all all today. You know, this was kind of back before I wish that I wish they were on Netflix. so You could just binge them all. But kind of back before Netflix took hold and you could just kind of binge stuff. But that that was a great Saturday when I could just sit down and watch all the engineering disaster episodes uh, until I couldn't take them anymore because they kind of they were diminishing returns after after you got so far into it they were you could tell they were running running out of stuff, but 
these are two that I've always had a big interest in, especially um, like uh, Penor, because it's just such an insane story of what happened in Love Canal. I, I mean, Love Canal, probably people have probably heard of. It was a bad, bad scene, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it first, and then we'll get into uh, Lake Penor, and then we've got some new stories, and we've got more uh, UFO craziness. Uh, from Cosmic Ray, part two of Cosmic Ray's uh, Desert Center UFO Encounters kind of segment in uh, your small town secrets to look forward to. So let's get on with the show. Most people think nothing ever happens in Canada, but we know this is simply not true. Do you like myths, legends, or learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? then this is the podcast for you. Join me, Canadian Girl, every two weeks as we travel around Canada exploring haunted places, searching for lost gold mines, trying to solve some true crime, and we even stop to observe historical events and people every now and again. Come on over to the channel today and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. That's Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, available on most podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and more. The little city of Niagara Falls hardly needs an introduction. A picturesque city nestled beside two of nature's greatest sites, the American Falls and the Bridal Veil Falls. Not everything in Niagara Falls, New York, is a postcard worthy. In 1978, a neighborhood called Love Canal would make national news as it was declared a national emergency. However, the story of Love Canal started way before 1978. It all started with an industrialist named William T. Love and his dream of building Model City. That's what he wanted to call it, was Model City. He arrived in Niagara Falls sometime in the 1890s. What drew him, as well as others of his same ilk, uh, was of course the falls. Electricity was the way of the future, and hydroelectricity was a new step into that future. Love envisioned a sprawling metropolis that would span from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie, a city large enough and with plenty of affordable housing to quell the unrest and squalor that had taken hold in other large cities such as Chicago and New York City. He also proclaimed that it would be a technological wonder. It would be paradise, a place that would solve all the problems of city life. Love talked a big game, but he talked it well enough that the state of New York granted him control of 30,000 acres of undeveloped land just a short distance from Niagara Falls by the small town of LaSalle. And uh, eventually, I believe like in the 30s, LaSalle would be absorbed into Niagara, so LaSalle is really kind of no more. Uh, it would be the largest land grant in New York State history. Soon, other big names in business and politics were jumping on the Model City bandwagon. The then president of First National Bank, 
J.M. Robinson visited the site of Model City and said, I recently visited the Model City. The site is a perfect one, and it will prove a great success. Love even got the governor of New York at the time, R.P. Flower, in on it, who at first wanted to veto the land grant, but uh, he turned all that around. The mighty falls of Niagara would not be enough for William T. Love. He wanted something bigger, something that would rival the natural wonder and power of the famous falls. He was going to build his own waterfall to power Model City, and in order to do that, he was going to have to get water up from the Lewiston Ledge, so up from the Niagara River, to uh, his 30,000 acres. He would do this by building a canal. Construction started on the canal on May 23rd, 1894. Love himself was on hand at the groundbreaking ceremony. In fact, uh, the only picture that exists of William Love is from this ceremony. The canal became the centerpiece of progress. It was what Love would show investors when they came to look at what was being done with their money. One mile long, 80 feet wide, and 15 feet deep. That's all that would ever be completed of Love's Canal. And for that matter, Model City itself. You see, even though Love uh, had control of the land, he still had to purchase it, which meant dealing with a lot of farmers around the area. And at first, he thought it would be a steal, as land prices around were going for about $50 an acre. But as many people got wind of what Love was attempting, uh, prices started going up. Acreage went from $50 an acre to as high as $500, and sometimes even $1,000 an acre. And in 1890s, that is a lot of cash. Love did all he could to keep funding coming in from selling bonds, giving tours of the site. He even went to London to secure more funding. However, his constant balancing act with landowners and the skyrocketing prices versus his investors became too much and the house of cards that would be Model City came tumbling down in 1896, when investors pulled out and started recouping as much of their assets as they could. Soon after, Love moved uh, to Western Canada to help develop land for a series of mines in a small town called uh, Rat Portage. So I don't think, like, a, a lot of people were not, like, mad at him. He got a lot of well wishes and a lot of support. Even some of the people that had uh, invested in the doomed model city said that they would go ahead and invest in the mine as well. I think because partially maybe it wasn't his, his project he was just helping out. But, like, I don't think he was a scam artist, but he does have couple of red flags like one we don't have a lot of pictures of the guy we don't know a lot about him in fact when he showed up in niagara falls uh no one really ever figured out where he had come from you know and he didn't seem to have a lot of his own money wrapped up in this whole thing it was all about getting other people's money investors in it so he kind of in i think uh subconsciously made it a big pyramid scheme, big Ponzi scheme, and then it just all fell out from under him. But I don't think he was that hated by people. I don't think he was being disingenuous. I think he just 
had a big head, and then he got in over said head, and and it just didn't happen for him. In the years after Love's departure, the canal, which was never really a canal, now it's just a big hole in the ground, was used by the Niagara County Irrigation and Water Supply Company. It also became a hot spot in the summer for swimming, and another hot spot in the winter for ice skating. In the 40s, the canal was bought by Hooker Chemical. They lined the canal with a clay cap and started dumping chemicals in it. From 1942 to 1953, it is estimated that Hooker Chemical dumped close to 22,000 tons of chemical waste into Love Canal. Then, in 1953, Hooker Chemical sold the land and the canal to the Niagara School Board for one dollar. Uh, the canal was covered in soil after the sale. Uh, they also, uh, apparently after they also sold it for, they sold it for one dollar uh, because it somehow also absolved them of any responsibility. And they sold it to the school board. After the sale, the school board started construction on two schools. The 91st Street School and uh, the 93rd Street School. The 93rd Street School actually had to be relocated due to soil being very soft, which just should have been a red flag. Once construction was started, the rest of the land was sold to the city and outside developers without any knowledge of what was underneath them. Uh, so they began to build, of course. This was literally the first crack in Love Canal. Because no one knew what was underground, the clay cap was repeatedly damaged and the chemicals inside began to seep into the ground. Over the next few years, many houses were built around the toxic pit that was Love Canal. A lot of these homes were built adjacent to the Berry Canal itself, their backyards butting right up against it. And if you look, I've got some pictures in the show notes, you can see what it looked like back when uh, there were houses there. Uh, there's just like, it almost looks like a courtyard. Like it's just this big, big uh, swath of land that doesn't have anything on it. And then there's just houses just butted up against it. And then a street, and then across the street is the 93rd uh, Street School. The schools opened, the houses sold, and the suburb of Love Canal was up and running. In the 60s, however, concerns over the new development started to pop up. Residents complained of odd smells. They started to discover puddles of chemicals in their yards. Trees were dying. And every once in a while, an unexplainable fire would start. For years, this would go on. Then, people started complaining of health problems. Everything from headaches to miscarriages. Children who attended the two schools were hit very hard with uh, health issues. It would be in the early 70s when the concerned residents would start searching for answers to these problems. In 1972, Lois Gibbs would move into Love Canal on 101st Street. She and her husband began raising their two kids there. Lois would go on to become the spearhead of change among the residents because her son had developed asthma and epilepsy and other ailments after starting school uh, in one of the schools. I'm not sure which one. In the years 1974, 75, and 76, the area was hit unusually hard by heavy rains, and this helped spread the chemicals even more. They began seeping into basements and in the backyards of the houses 
adjacent to the canal. These homes would later be known as the Hazard Zone. In October of 1976, the Niagara Gazette started reporting on the issues at Love Canal, with reporter Mike Brown even taking his own soil samples to be tested. This got the ball rolling. Soon the city was doing its own investigation, which would lead to the state level doing its own investigation. And over the next couple of years, tests of the soil and even the air would reveal 81 different chemicals around the canal, including benzene and Myrex, a pretty deadly and now banned pesticide. Miscarriages, low birth rates, uh, birth defects, cancer-causing agents, low white blood cell counts, all this and more had been plaguing the residents of Love Canal for almost two decades now. Finally, on August 2nd of 1978, the New York Department of Health declared Love Canal a health emergency, and the state government began purchasing uh, the homes and relocating the 293 families in what had been deemed the hazard zone. On August 7th of that year, President Jimmy Carter declared Love Canal a national state of emergency, and this helped to release funds uh, to uh, help the cleanup. This is the first time that a national state of emergency had been issued for something that was not a natural disaster. At the beginning of October 1978, construction began to clean up the canal. Channels were dug to drain the chemicals into the sewers, which doesn't sound that great anyway. The, the clay cap would be repaired and reinforced, and then they would build a completely different barrier with a different material around it. However, the city refused to evacuate the remaining families while construction was going on, which makes no sense because that would obviously, I think, be worse, right? Because now you've got all these people constantly exposed to whatever they're digging up, whatever they're hauling away, whatever they're, you know, draining, whatever they're dealing with, but they wouldn't get rid because these people weren't in the hazard zone. So they were just like, yeah, you'll be fine. So this is when the protest would start. Lois Gibbs would lead the charge. She would become leader of the Homeowners Association, and for two years would fight to get the rest of the people out of Love Canal. Uh, she was arrested multiple times for uh, protesting, but those charges uh, were always quietly dropped. She worked with local organizations and doctors to find answers to the health issues many were experiencing. She helped to protest everything from the government to the construction itself. They did some great stuff like dropping off coffins at the governor's mansion and all this. And I don't think that she was in on this, and I couldn't find a lot of information about it. But apparently, like later, like in 1980, uh, somebody kidnapped a bunch of government officials and held them hostage at the Homeowners Association for like five days. I tried to find more about it. I tried to get on newspapers.com, and I searched New York newspapers Love Canal, hostage, you know, stuff like that for that day, but I couldn't find anything. And then I think I found to figure it out why. Um, the day before this allegedly happened, uh, Mount St. Helens blew up, and there also was a huge hostage situation in Iran, so I just kept seeing uh, Mount St. Helens stuff. I think it just blanked, you know, the news of that 
just put that down and there wasn't a whole lot of reporting on it. So, and then I also just kept running into Iranian hostage stuff. But I don't, like I said, I don't think she was in on that. I think that was a, I think that was a splinter group, if you will. Lois would be tossed out of many, many meetings, uh, trying to get her point across and just, you know, meeting, you know, meeting everything head on. She and other allies would even testify before Congress. Lois's tenacity would pay off in May of 1980 when President Carter would again declare a federal state of emergency and sign a $20 million federal aid package to buy the remaining homes. Mostly, some people were offered a low interest loan because apparently the government didn't have enough money. In the end, it would cost $24 million for the government to relocate 728 remaining families in a 50 square block radius. Um, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm going to mention it because something kind of funny happened. So, this also led to the Super Pact uh, Act, which has a really long, stupid name, what the bill is actually called, but people just call it the Super Pact. The Super Pact or the Super Pact Act, which essentially uh, holds companies accountable if their messes have to be cleaned up by the government, even if the mess was made before the bill. And so, in the next episode, the next episode, in the next story about uh, Lake Penure, I looked up, I found a couple of Google newspaper clippings for some stuff, and uh, I was just clicking on them to see if there was any little tidbits in there that you don't hear a lot about. But it was it was really cool because it shows one page of a Louisiana newspaper, and half of it is the story about the lake, and then underneath it is a story about the Super Pack uh, being being like still in talks, but it was almost ready to go. And I'm just sitting there going, completely unintended synchronicity that I find this little newspaper that like reports and is related to both of the stories that I'm talking about tonight. And I thought that was really really neat to see. I've linked that one in the show notes if people want to people want to go and see what I see what I'm talking about. Uh, Hooker Chemical who had since been bought by Occidental Chemical, settled with 1,400 residents for an average of $14,250 person, as well as a million-dollar medical fund. The federal government would also sue Occidental for $45 million. The cleanup lasted 20 years. It lasted like well past the 90s. Uh, but in 1990, a new development called Black Creek Village opened near the now-contained kind of Love Canal. Um, however, you know, many of the residents say, hey, they got it, it's contained, it's safe, we moved back, we've lived here for years, everything's been fine. Uh, Lois Gibbs uh, doesn't agree with that, and she says it's only a matter of time before something else happens. And I think it was something like in like 2004 they declared it safe, but even to this day, like, if you go there, I've put some pictures in the show notes, uh, you can kind of walk around it, but it's obviously fenced off, you can't go in there. And I think even now, like, every once in a while, you get, they'll get a little bubble up, a little bubble up in the middle of just all that dead ground of, uh, of some mysterious substance. But that's where it stands right now, like, you can go, like I said, you can go check it out, you can go to... Black Creek Village sounds sounds pretty ominous by itself, and see what's still there 
of the infamous Love Canal. Um, I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to get another bottle of water. And uh, when we when I come back, which for you will be almost instantaneous, we are going to talk about Lake Penor in Delcom, Louisiana, and uh, the craziness that just a little bit of bad math uh, started in 1980. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The town of Delcom, Louisiana, is nestled on the borders of Iberia and Vermilion parishes. The town is at the head of the Delcom Canal, which leads from Lake Penor to the Gulf of Mexico, kind of inadvertently, like the canal runs into a waterway, which runs into another waterway, but eventually they're all connected and eventually you'll get to the Gulf of Mexico. It was on Lake Pinor in 1980 that one of the most jaw-dropping engineering disasters happened in the United States. Underneath the lake was a massive salt mine named the Jefferson Island Salt Mine, which opened in 1919. The mine was home 
to a massive amounts of salt and in 1980 was ran by the Diamond Crystal Salt Company. Salt deposits are not just good for salt, but also for oil. As the deposits of salt grow, they push up on everything above them. This traps oil in the valleys between the salt deposits. So imagine these kind of these deposits are just like a giant mountain of salt that is pushing up on all the sediment and everything above it. And then so you get these valleys of oil and all this other stuff in between these giant mountains of salt. So it kind of traps the oil in these in these valleys, making it much making it very easy to get to. Because of this, the Texaco Oil Company was uh, conducting test drilling on the lake. In the early morning of November 20th, 1980, workers on an oil derrick were surprised when their 14-inch drill bit became stuck and suddenly lurched to one side. They weren't able to get it under control and were taken back to shore. 90 minutes later, they watched as the 150-foot-tall oil derrick somehow sank, quote-unquote, below the water. How was this possible? The lake was only 10 foot deep. What happened was bad math. Texaco had attempted to triangulate the best places to drill, but at this drill spot, the math was wrong on one of the coordinates, putting the drill about 400 feet off from where it was supposed to be. As a result, the 14 inch bit pierced the ceiling of the salt mine. So they drilled like 1300 feet, 1400 feet or something like that thought they had a, a couple of hundred feet to go, uh, but they didn't, and uh, they breached the salt mine. This created a whirlpool as water started to fill the mine. Luckily, all 55 employees in the mine made it out safely. In fact, there were no deaths whatsoever from this whole disaster. Soon that vortex started to gain power as water filled the mine. It was also dissolving the salt creating an ever-increasing cavity to fill. It didn't take long for crowds to gather to see the spectacle, and a spectacle it was. Eleven barges, most of them belonging to Texaco themselves, and a tugboat were pulled down into the massive vortex and then into the mine. Not everyone was a hip to what was going on at the time, uh, Leonce Viator, which is a great name by the way, was out on the lake that day fishing for catfish. He soon found him and his boat being pulled in the direction of the whirlpool. If the barges didn't have enough power to escape, then his 14-foot fishing boat didn't stand a chance. Luckily, it would be one of these barges that saved him. One of the barges had temporarily plugged the hole giving Viator enough time to get back in shore and tie his boat to a tree. Leonce wasn't the only one to escape the Vortex's grip. Ori's Lee Minard was on the tugboat that I mentioned earlier. Uh, that stuck barge also gave him and the crew on the tugboat enough time to get away as well. And I'm unsure as if, like, they just, like, got the shore left the tugboat there and then it got sucked into the hole or if another boat came and got him. I'm not sure how they got away from it, uh, but they did. After the boats and barges 
the vortex started on the land itself. 68 acres of Jefferson Island broke up and was sucked down the hole. Onlookers watched as old growth trees, some 150 feet high, just vanished from the skyline. Leon's Vitor watched helplessly as his boat and the tree he had tied it to suffered the same fate. After eating a chunk out of Jefferson Island, it started on the Delcam Canal by actually reversing the flow of the canal, as well as temporarily creating a large waterfall where the canal and lake met. So I, um, the lake was getting deeper, like it was being sucked in, you know, so all the sediment, it's just kind of, it's and now it's eating in on itself and becoming deeper. And so now the lake is lower than the canal and it gets to a point where the water's kind of running out and for a little bit they had this huge waterfall, like 150 feet or something for a little bit while, uh, while the water is being sucked back in through the canal. And it's actually, if you watch the little history channel, I've linked to the show notes it's on YouTube, the little history channel segment about this, there's a guy that comes on, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says one of the one of the most astounding things. He's like, technically, this means that this was the only time that because the canal was connected to the Gulf of Mexico, that the Gulf of Mexico ever flowed north. Like that's how powerful and just all this was. Even after all of that, it wasn't done. The now saltless salt mine was filled with water, so it was filled to the brim with water. Because of it, the entrance to the salt mine for a little bit became a geyser, just shooting water out like an oil, you know, like like an oil derrick. And there's a nice picture of it as well that I've put in the show notes. It took two days for the mine to completely fill with water, and after that, things started to come out from the hole, uh, including nine of the 11 barges. The other two barges have never been found. They're still down there somewhere. Like underground, just we don't know where they're at. Lake Pinor would never be the same. It would become much deeper, like hundreds of feet deeper. And the salt content from the mine had turned it from a freshwater lake into a saltwater lake. And uh, the whole ecosystem had changed. Like they still fish there, but they had to stock it with fish that could live in, in the salt water. In 1994, a natural gas company called AGL Resources started using the now empty mine to store natural gas and even radioactive materials. So um, they use what they call the salt domes, and I'm not sure if that is what's left over. I think that's what, the, what that is, is like the cavern that is left over after the salt is mined out. And to give you an idea of how big this mine is, those salt domes are like almost as tall as Mount Everest. Like they're, it's a gigantic underground thing. In 2006, the company started attempts to expand further into the mine, an expansion that many do not want. Uh, they don't want a repeat of 1980 or have any harm come to the aquifer. Um, and there's been some sinkholes around the area recently that have really made people go, uh, we don't want any more of that. Um, a strange bubbling has been seen on the lake in recent years, and that hasn't helped matters any. Uh, no one knows, or at least wants to fess up, to where this bubbling is coming from. This battle still goes on in 2020. Most recently, a bill for an environmental impact statement failed to vote. 
Uh, but neither side, to this point, has won. They're still fighting it out in court. Um, I would very much like to visit Lake Panier, uh, even even if it looks a lot different than it used to. This is one of the, my favorite stories, and I would like to go down there and see it for myself. Maybe one of these when I get around the hiking uh, in Louisiana, I'll have to check it out. But that's been uh, our two features for this episode. Uh, we are at intermission. I have so this week was very productive on the music side of things. Um, I started a track, and then I had a little piece of it that I was trying to use, and it wasn't quite working, but I liked it. So that became its own track. That's what I'm going to play tonight, is that piece that evolved into its own song. And then, if you've, if you've, heard, if you've subconsciously noticed, uh, the backing track for tonight is also new. So tonight I'm going to play uh, really a retro synthwave track that just kind of evolved out of a piece of this other song, which I'll play next week. Uh, this track is called uh, uh, Getting Lost, uh, in parentheses, Clearing My Head. And uh, I'll be back after this with the local headlines.
All right. Uh, uh, I got three news stories. It was kind of a slow news week, unless you wanted to talk about uh, the rocket pack guy at LAX, which I didn't want to do. But I found I found a few that, that were kind of charming and I really dug. This first one is from thisweeksnews.com, written by Paul Comstack. Uh, this is a, took, took place in Delaware, Ohio. Delaware River cleanup brings close encounter with mysterious metal saucer. The truth is out there, and Delaware city workers thought maybe they'd stumbled upon a piece of it in the Altagheny River. Two workers in the city's public utilities department, who helped lead an August 22nd volunteer cleanup of the river, discovered an enormous chunk of metal that resembles an Apollo 11 space capsule, or perhaps something else. They joked that it was a UFO, said a Caroline Sasirchi, I think is how you would say her name, the city's watershed and sustainability coordinator. It took a city backhoe to remove the 880-pound object from the river. The city posted a photo of the mystery item on Facebook on August 31st, and two people quickly identified it as a top from White Sands Campground at 334, or I'm sorry, 341 Lake Street. And the first time I read that, I didn't, I didn't catch the campground part. And for a second, I was like, from White Sands, like the nuclear missile test base? Uh, White Sands owner Gene Monty said, White Sands has two tops, so named for the resemblance to a child's spinning top. They float in the water flat side down, and like smaller tops, they can be made to spin when a, simmer, a swimmer climbs aboard, he said. The one pulled from the Ultagani washed away in the May 19th flood, Monty said. The flood washed out my beaches and everything, and I had the tops sitting on the grass where the campers go. One of the campers said that the water was so swift, it picked up the top and floated it right down the river. The city took the top to Sims Brothers Recycling and 65 London Road, which Monty said called him about two hours after the top came out of the river. He said the top will need some repair work, but he's eager to get it back. I'd like to see the equipment stay in use, he said. Monty said he opened White Sands about 30 years ago and purchased the tops and other water features from the late Jack, uh, Jack Eccles when he closed Eccles Lake along Pollock Road. Pollock Road. Eccles Lake has a Facebook page that says the lake opened in 1942 at the site of a former quarry. A page on the Delaware County Historical Society website says the lake was later drained. Monty, who said he was a lifeguard at Eccles Lake in his youth, estimated the tops are at least 60 years old. Along with the tops, he also bought from Eccles a rolling barrel and a swinging rings, which are still in use at White Sands. A water slide was added later. You can say a uh, white sand top finds its way home from spring flood, Monty said with a laugh. It was kind of giving him a, a headline, I think. The August 22nd river cleanup is an annual event, and Sisirchi uh, said 20 volunteers participated this year. The river's level was ideal for the cleanup, and the weather was perfect, she said. Everyone showed up wearing masks and practiced social distancing. The volunteers collected from the river 45 bags of trash, 1,060 pounds scrap metal that was recycled. The top wasn't the only oddity discovered. They found an old typewriter, a toy gun, part of a vacuum, and two old bikes, she said. There was significantly less trash in the river after our huge haul last year, which was very encouraging, she said. No tires were found, compared to at least a dozen in 2019. And I thought, like, it's a story, yeah, it's not about UFOs, but 
I thought it was very, very charming, very touching. Uh, this next one is uh, from New Zealand. So this is uh, at rmz.co.nz by uh, Caroline Tucky. Caroline Tucky, I'm sorry. New Zealand Tasmanian tiger pelt provides DNA of extinct marsupial. Or is it extinct? Tasmanian tigers or thylacines were a fox-like marsupial that became extinct on the Australian mainland less than 2,000 years ago. That's what the article says. I don't know if that's a typo because we have pictures of them. They were around like in the 1920s, the last couple of them. So yeah, it's been way less than 2,000 years ago. The surviving Tasmanian population was wiped out by European settlers who thought they were a threat to their sheep and the last living thylacine died in a zoo in Hobart in 1936. The New Zealand pelt has revealed new information about their coats and provided some surviving DNA. It was bought in 1923 by a taxidermist and collector, Archibald Robertson. After, Robertson. after Robertson's death, it was displayed by friends of the family who ran a small Katura uh, taxidermy gallery near Martinborough, where it was spotted by scientists who discussed the find with the uh, T. Papa curator, Alan Tennyson. It's one of the more famous extinct animals in the world, and there's a huge amount of attention on it even today. They're still searching, researching how it lived and what happened to it. The attention has never really gone off the thylacine, so new material here in New Zealand is really exciting, he said. It was pretty unexpected, obviously. It had been kicking around in New Zealand for many decades, but it had been brought to the attention of the scientific community who were working on thylacines globally. I had heard about it, a few reports came through about in 2017, I read a global review of all the specimens, and I was very surprised uh, that that one and the couple of skulls we've got in uh, Tipapa didn't appear in their database. Tennyson wrote that the lead author of the global review to let him know about the specimens here, and he was very interested. I was aware that it was a very nice pelt, but not knowing the global situation with the state of other ones here around the world. I wasn't clear on how important it was, but it sounds like it's really one of the best that's still preserved anywhere, Tennyson said. What scientists learn from the Wungani pelt? David Thorogood, Thorogood, a conservator at the Queen Victoria Museum in Tasmania, helped organize for the pelt to be brought to the National Museum of Australia. He told the ABC uh, that the uh, Wungani pelt is unique because it offers a special glimpse into the thylacine's coloring and the structure of their fur. Most thylacine pelts were preserved using arsenic or mercury, with methods that destroyed the DNA, but this pelt was preserved with a different method that allowed long DNA fragments to stay intact. Samples have been taken and compared with DNA held at the University of Melbourne. Thurgood told the ABC only a few observations of thylacine hair have uh, been done in the past, and the Wungani pelt has more vivid is more vivid than uh, the other faded pelts held by museums. So I was able to look at the hair in quite a different way, and there are eight different types of hair on the thylacine. The rich chocolate browns on the stripes, the honey colors, down to the really beautiful grays on the other side, underside of the animal indicate how beautiful it would, it would have been. Some of the hairs are hollow, a bit like other species who lived in the cold and used these fine pockets of air to keep themselves warm and be well adapted to the uh, Tasmanian climate. 
what else could the pelt offer? Tennyson says that the Wungani pelt's DNA could provide more knowledge to researchers. Studies in the thylacine DNA have already been made, but there's not much of it around, and the more diversity gives more clues. Ultimately, there's only a limited number of these remains of extinct animals, so it's a very limited pool, and the number being discovered is getting less and less. So something like this being discovered so recently is really exciting, Tennyson says. The science of DNA research has really been taking off in the last few decades, so that a lot more information can be found out using the DNA. So it's fantastic that this one clearly does have good DNA in it. That allowed the research team to discover a lot more about the individual history of this particular animal. What else is new and promising in this thylacine discovery? The, thy the thylacine was officially declared extinct in 1986, but unconfirmed sightings are regularly reported in Tasmania. Searchers have failed to turn up any solid evidence that there could be a surviving population uh, that remains. In 2000, scientists at the Australian Museum announced a project attempting to clone a Tasmanian tiger using genetic material from a pup which had been preserved in alcohol, uh, prompting debates about the science and ethics of whether reviving an extinct species could or should be done. But the project was scrapped in 2005 because the genetic material was too damaged. However, in 2017, scientists uh, announced they had sequenced the pup's genome. Thylacines and wolves are a unique example of convergent evolution, where two very different species become physically similar and fill the same niche roles. And that team wanted to compare the genetics of the two species to see if there was any similar code in their genetic blueprint. Studies showed there wasn't, but it unexpectedly showed a sharp bottleneck in genetically diverse in the genetic diversity of the population somewhere between 70,000 and 120,000 years ago. That's uh, likely to reflect some sort of environmental strain on the species, such as a shift in climate. Tennyson says that the more we continue to discover about the, thyl the thylacine, the better we can understand the big picture, questions about the species uh, and the evolution and the destruction. I've been keen for them to be out there, but I'm afraid I don't have any faith that there are any out there because they are quite a large animal. It's been many, many decades since there's been any confirmed sightings and a lot of people have been looking. It's just amazing to hear about new specimens of extinct things turning up and uh, once like this that are preserved and hiding away in corners, no doubt there's plenty of other treasures hidden in small museums around the place which we still haven't found. It's important that we keep an interest in the extinct animals because the more we can learn about why they went extinct, uh, it helps us understand current conservation issues and hopefully leads to better conservation outcomes for other species from the future. And I know that was a long one, but uh, I am always interested in anything Tasmanian tiger. So when something pops up, I like to give it a read, and I thought I would share that one on the show. Don't worry, this next one's very short. Uh, this is from Coast to Coast AM by Tim Banal. Who else? Uh, and this is Watch Shadow Creature filmed in Maine. So this has got a, this has got a video with it, and it's a, it's a good one. A curious piece of dash cam footage from a motorist in Maine appears to show some kind of shadow creature dart across the road. The eerie video was posted on Wednesday afternoon by Facebook group 207 Paranormal, which specializes in reporting accounts of high strangeness in Maine. According to them, the footage was captured in the town of Falmouth a few days ago. 
and the anomaly was only noticed by the driver when he later revisited the video from their drive as in hopes of seeing a deer that had been spotted earlier in the trip. In the video, as the car travels down a dark road illuminated by only the headlights of the vehicle, and Toto's classic tune, Love Isn't Always On Time, plays on the radio. Indeed, that is what is playing on the radio. A dark oddity that appears to be some kind of creature suddenly and quickly zips from one side of the road to the other and disappears in the darkness. The strange incident lasts only a few seconds, so it's understandable how the driver may have missed sighting when unfolded before their very eyes. As to what the anomaly may have been, the most popular possibility put forward by paranormal enthusiasts and those who love a good spooky video is that it could be ghostly in nature, perhaps the spirit of an animal. More skeptical viewers will undoubtedly argue the creature is a genuine animal that only looks supernatural due to the trick of light and the shadow as it appears right where the illumination of the headlights meet the darkness of the road. Where do you stand on the footage? Uh, share your thoughts on the video at the C2C Facebook page. So you can go to this. There is a link. I think the video is actually right there on the story as well. And uh, it's very quick. It doesn't. It's not. A, it's, you know, it's like ten seconds long or something. And what you see is you don't see a solid thing. You just see this blurry image in the shape of a dog or maybe a thylacine, and it runs across the road. And I don't know what to make of it. Uh, I don't think that it's like video compression or just, you know, the low res of the camera because, like, it's almost transparent. Like, I I've never seen, like, I've seen some low quality stuff and uh, you can still kind of, I mean, the stuff doesn't show up as transparent unless it's going very fast, maybe. But it could be that. It could be a simple After Effects filter or, you know, but it's it's an interesting video to take a look at. And uh, uh, I like I liked it. It was a nice, short, sweet. Got a good, got a good soundtrack to it, and a very spooky thing. To take a look at, and uh, that will do it for this edition of Local Headlines. We're gonna dig back into uh, some UFO goodness with uh, Cosmic Ray here in a little bit on uh, your small town secrets. So, like I said, tonight on Your Small Town Secrets, we're going to be continuing uh, the great piece that Cosmic Ray has written about the Desert Center area, which of course is where George Adamski was and all these other contactees, and he has dug up all of these old uh, sightings and stories about it. And so in part two of this, we're going to uh, still be following uh, our intrepid reporter, Mr. Bernard, around, uh, but this time he's going to go to the radio station and finds out a few interesting things. So uh, this is the beginning of part two here. This is the experience. The uh, KYOR radio and the flying saucer connection. Reporter Bernard was looking to speak with someone in the know about flying saucer sightings in Eastern Riverside County. And who better than John M. Wages, the manager of Blythe's then sole radio station, KYOR. Bernard had written the wages and told him that he would be coming out to the Colorado desert for the purpose of finding out about flying saucer sightings in the area and asking the radio station manager if he could provide him with a few leads and perhaps introduce him around the community. Bernard's first stop would be meeting with other employees of KYOR Radio. 
When Bernard first arrived in Blythe, he went directly to the radio station. He was greeted by Wages, who pumped his hand, inquiring, How are you? It's nice to see you. But what in the hell have you got me into? The station manager further, the station manager further added that, I got your letter, and I thought I would give you a hand. I put an item on air last night, uh, saying if anyone had any definite ideas about the saucers, they could contact you here at the station. Well, you sure as hell have been contacted. It turns out that Paul Lehman, one of KYOR's announcers, was alone in the radio station when the pitch went out over the air. And for the next two hours, KYOR's telephone lines were jammed. I knew people were interested, said Lyman, but I didn't know they were that interested. Bernard wondered what Lehman thought about flying saucers and asked him as much. Well, the announcer hedged, I don't really know. When everybody, including the government, gets so worked up about something, it can't be nothing. Blue Book Magazine reporter also spoke with KYOR's community chief, Robin Hill, who was more definite about flying saucers. Don't ask me what they are, he asserted, but one thing is certain, they uh, sure as hell are. Even Mrs. Wages opined to the flying saucer craze sweeping the desert communities. No matter where you go, she said, talk always comes around to saucers. She explained that even local service clubs were inviting UFO authorities to come and speak at their luncheons, and a local minister devoted his Sunday sermon to the whys and the wherefores of the saucer's arrival. The wife of the radio station manager also noted that science classes at Blythe High School devoted much of their time to studying UFOs and the possibility of intelligent life existing on other planets. There was a group of teachers and students that met every two weeks to study recent sightings and flying saucer reports from throughout the area. J.M. Wages affirmed what his wife stated about the enthusiasm for UFO research being generated at the local high school. He pointed out to Bernard that George Wixom, a science teacher, has even organized a citizens committee and they have scheduled a meeting at the high school auditorium to hear a tape recording by an aircraft worker who says he has made several contact with saucers. Wages added that if you want to study reactions, stick around for that meeting. And if you and if your schedule is not too full, Mrs. Wages wants to take you out to Desert Center to see where Adamski says he met the man from Venus, which we've talked about on a previous episode. The radio station's manager's wife wanted to take the reporter to the exact spot in the desert where Adamski met the Venusian cosmonaut Orthon. Bernard spent the entire day with John M. Wages at the radio station, even staying with him as he put uh, KYOR's broadcast options to bed for the night. Wages introduced the reporter to literally all of the station personnel, the last one being a part-time station employee, Bill Tucker. The gentleman's full-time job, day job, was working as a Civil Aeronautics Administration engineer. So if anyone would be knowledgeable about the maneuvering and operational characteristics of the flying saucers, this would be uh, Johnny on the spot, so to speak. No sooner did Bernard tell Tucker why he was in Blythe, but the aeronautics engineer was ready with an amazing flying saucer story. A buddy of mine in Elko, Nevada, spotted three UFOs cruising along beside his plane, and he took photos. I helped him develop them. We figured the saucers were 30 to 50 feet in diameter and flying about 100 feet from his plane. 
Tucker-related that he and his friend notified the Air Force Intelligence in San Francisco, California, and an officer flew out to Elko the very next day. The Air Force investigation officer looked at the UFO photos and said they were nothing. But before he left, noted Tucker, he confiscated the prints and negatives and suggested we forget the whole thing. The aeronautics engineer smiled wildly and commented, Tell me, really, how does a uh, buy forget nothing? That's the end there of part two of uh, all the all the stories from Desert Center and Blythe and all of that. And like I said last last episode, I just love old UFO stories. I love everyone running around calling them saucers and flying saucers and all that. It's so great. And actually, uh, I've been kind of, I don't think I've, I stopped there, but I've been to Elko, Nevada. I've driven through it twice at least. Sounded familiar, and I looked it up real quick. And yep, it's on the it's on the I eighty. So that means when I lived in California, I went through it when I drove there, and I went through it when I came back. But we have got some more old school flying saucer goodness coming from Cosmic Ray in the next episode. And just like the last last episode, I will post a PDF of his article in the show notes if you want to go and see. He's got some pictures and stuff in there, and you can read all of it. Uh, for yourself. And uh, I think that will about do it for uh, this ver- this edition of your Small Town Secrets. And that is a wrap on 4.07. Thank you so much for joining me uh, and listen to me ramble on for a little bit over an hour. Uh, thanks. Um, if you want more, please check out patreon.com slash stscast or visit stscast.com and click on the support tab. That'll also get you there where uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, a $1, a $3, and a $5 level. $1 will get you a sticker, shout out on the show, access to the Facebook group, and uh, any of the other little goodies that I decided to post on Patreon. The $3 level will give you a button instead of a sticker and everything else that I just said, plus MP3s of all the music that I use in the intermissions and uh, an ad-free, promo-free version of the show in your own personal RSS feed. And uh, the $5 version will give you a button and a sticker. Everything else I just said, the music, the shout-outs, the ad-free show, all that, and the exclusive STS Backroads podcast, which usually is a, uh extension of the main show. So the last episode was, of course, John Titer and Ong's hat, and I dug up some almost more crazy time travel stories than the John Titer story uh, to talk about on the Backroads show. We talked about uh, Stephen Gibbs, who makes his own kind of astral projection time machine that you can purchase if you're a good enough person. And uh, we talked about Single Seven, who is from the future, trying to stop. He came back to warn us about people from the future coming back to cause global warming, to uh, fight off a race of aliens in the future. That was crazy. And that's what we get into on the Backwards Podcast. And so for this episode, I'm going to be talking about another little town that got wiped off the map because of pollution. We're going to talk about Times Beach, a town that was started by a newspaper uh, and then through a series of very unfortunate events was leveled, and now is a state park called Route 66 State Park. So that's what we're going to get into on the Backroads podcast. So if you want more of this show, uh, you want to hear about 
on that and some of the other topics that we've talked about, then uh, get on over and help out the show. It really helps support the show here and get some cool merch, get some cool, uh, not merch, what do you want to call it? Swag, swag, and uh, some bonus content as well. Uh, you can also find a bunch of other stuff on the STS Cast website, including the email form at the bottom of the main page if you need to send me or want to send me uh, your small town secret, your experience, your local legend, your local, like, you know, unsolved murder, whatever, weird history. Um, you can, you know, we can get you on Skype. You can just write something in. You can send me an article. You can send me your own audio file so I can drop it in the show. Whatever you want to do, we'll get it on the show. And uh, you can also find links to everything, uh, including my social media. I'm most active on Twitter. That's at STScast. Facebook is at STScast. Uh, Instagram is at STScast.gram. And also a merch tab. So you want to buy a shirt, you want to buy a coffee mug, a sticker, a phone case. Huh? A phone case. And uh, I almost I almost did a fanny pack. I almost did it. Uh, I might. And I also have a brand new shirt up there based on one of the pictures that we took when me and my friend went to the TNT area in Point Pleasant and saw a very spooky kind of pareidolia image of Mothman in the in the uh, power plant steam and the lights. So I kind of took it, jazzed it up a little bit, and made an awesome shirt out of it. So you can go check that out. It's it's a lot different than what's up there on the store. I'm going to be playing around with some new designs and stuff here soon. But I think I've plugged all of my crap. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Uh, like I said, uh, other things that you can do real quick if you can't support it financially is leave a review on iTunes or whatever pod catcher, player you use. It all helps the show get noticed. Uh, the best thing to do, really, word of mouth. If everyone that listens to the show gets one more weirdo to listen to the show, then uh, uh, we double all the weirdos, and that's all great. So I'm going to leave you with that. I'm going to go and finish this up and get it uploaded, and I will uh, talk to my Patreons next week for Backroads, and I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks with a new episode of the show. So until then, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.